On today's show, our guest is Matt Hall. Matt is one of those high achievers that you look up to and wonder, how did he achieve all of that? But when you get to know him a little, like you will on this podcast, you'll quickly realize that his success was no accident and it wasn't good luck. It was a result of hard work and great timing. Going all in is the only way for Matt. Whether it was flying F-18s in the RAAF or F-15s in the USAF, or it's racing against the clock in the fastest motorsport in the world, the Red Bull Air Race, Matt truly knows what it means to go all in. Matt is currently positioned in second place in the Red Bull Air Race, and with just two rounds of the 2018 season remaining, he's poised to pounce on his first championship title. I'm excited he's here, so please help me in welcoming Matt Hall. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Matt. Welcome to the Go All In Podcast, mate. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, thanks for having me on it. Well, I'd like to start off all of my shows with a quick little get-to-know-you quiz. Helps warm us up, calms us down a little bit, and maybe your friends and family listening and your fans that are listening in will get to know something about you that they don't already know. It's pretty random. It's in no particular order. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Yep. All right, man. Do you prefer the, the MX or the Edge? Uh, it depends what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> what if it's just on the weekend on a Saturday morning? Going for a fly, uh, the MX, uh, racing the edge. Is the, is the MX still set up as a race plane? Uh, it's set up more as an aerobatic plane now, so we could, we could rapidly put it as a race plane, but uh, it's now set up for doing uh, more air show type stuff, uh, which makes it probably a bit more fun to fly because you can do uh, a bit more in it in that regard. Different things than what you do in a race plane, right? Exactly. Nice, nice. Do you prefer cardio or weights? Uh, cardio vegan or paleo oh, definitely not vegan <laughs> says the carnivore on the other side of the interview yeah exactly <laughs> nice one nice one what was your first car Matt an Alfa Romeo oh, that's a pretty good first car yeah it was my dad's and I rode it off and rebuilt it <laughs> <laughs> can you ride a motorbike I do yeah what's yeah. your bike now yeah I do uh, I've been on motorbikes all my life and I've got a GSX-R1000 now Nice machine. I had a Jixxer as well. I had a Jixxer 750. Okay. I tossed that one down the road, unfortunately. But live to fight another day and do it all again. It's kind of cool. All right, some fighter pilot questions for you, mate. Do you prefer uh, BFM or CAS? Oh, once again, it's, uh, they're all, they're all uh, fighting their own way. You know, BFM's, BFM's good for uh, being able to um, just you know, get up there and dogfight. CAS is rewarding to be able to help the guys on the ground. Nice, nice. And from an ex-Navy guy to an Air Force guy, do you prefer a maritime strike mission or a combat air patrol? It depends if the combat air patrol's got action. If the combat air patrol's <laughs> got action, I'll take that any day for air-to-air stuff, but uh, quite often the cap is, uh, is quite boring. Nice one, nice one. All right, a serious pilot question to end. What do you prefer, man? Do you prefer the, uh, the Spitfire or the Mustang? <laughs> Another hard one. Um, probably the... The Spitfire, just for, uh, for going for a fly, it's, um, it's just such, the Spitfire is probably more of a romantic, hands-on pilot's aircraft, but if I was actually going into action, I'd, uh, I'd take the Mustang, just, it's, uh, it's a more solid war machine. 
Nice one. I think I know the answer to this question as well, and it's the final one. Do you prefer the F-18 or the F-15? F-15, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I was yeah. wrong. It's not the first, that wasn't the first love. Yeah, the, um, the, the F-18 was, uh, is a great plane, uh, don't get me wrong, uh, but the capability of the F-15, the Strike Eagle in particular, was uh, absolutely incredible. Nice, nice. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit shortly as well. Well, Matt, thank you for sharing that with us. A little bit of fun to get us all going. And people come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Oh, that's a big question. Um, probably probably the biggest uh, yeah, in, in general All In story is uh, joining the Air Race. I already had a career set up in the military as a wing commander, you know, I was on promotion lists and all sorts of things, but I did a massive change in direction and uh, resigned from the Air Force and became a race pilot. I guess the philosophy I use there is um, if you've got an opportunity and you've got the potential to use that opportunity, you can't blame anybody if you don't have success, if you don't try and do it. So uh, while I had a nice career in the Air Force, uh, it was also one of those things that I had to project forward and go, if in five years' time I'm watching somebody else do, uh, do this racing thing, am I going to be jealous of them or am I going to be comfortable in my career? And uh, the, the answer to that was I'd be jealous of them. So it meant that I had to, be, uh, I had to take the, uh, the hard decision to leave a career I absolutely loved to chase one that I potentially loved even more. So, yeah, it's just making sure that you, you weigh up every opportunity that comes your way and a bit of risk assessment about whether the, uh, the effort you have to put in and whether the, the cost of it, because everything comes at a price, you've got to decide if it's all worth it uh, for the risk of it not turning out or, uh, or not being as enjoyable as you're hoping. Well, that is a, an, an all-in story. Anyone that's had a job or a career of any description that jo- decides to change directions would understand and be able to empathize with that. It's a, it's a pretty common thing. But you had like the dream job, the coolest job that you could possibly want for yourself personally, then to try and go and pursue something that you kind of know nothing at all about. Were you methodical in your decision-making process or was it something that just kind of came easily? It was a no-brainer. Uh, no, it, it had to be methodical. Like... Um... You know, you've always got to test the water on the uh, you know, grass is greener on the other side. Mm. Um, so we had to, you have to assume success and then go, right, what's our life going to be like on the other side if we are successfully achieving the other side? And then, you know, look at all the, all the costs associated with it, which is all the yeah, financial and physical and family and time costs because there is a lot more commitment to uh, this current job in time. Uh, you know, it's much harder than my Air Force job was as far as time commitment is concerned. You've got to look at it as in enjoyment. How does it fit your moral standards? How does it fit your um, desires for achievement? And then you've got to look at the middle ground, which is how do I get from where I am now to where I want to be and look at the, uh, you know, once again, uh, the same process there. What are the costs? What are the time costs? What are the financial costs? What are the family costs? to get yourself in a position where you may or may not then get the job. So there's a big investment there as well that uh, we end up mortgaging the house and uh, spending a lot of money for me to get the qualifications just to have a crack at whether they wanted to give me a job. So you've got to, you've got to go through it in a very methodical method to make sure you've always got an out and you've always got a, an exit strategy where you can go, right, if we don't make this and we've spent this amount of money, uh, we've got to pull the pin and, uh, and wind back. Well, it sounds like you you were extremely methodical in the process there. Did your Air Force mates think you were crazy? I know what it's like in the military. You come up with these crazy ideas and your mates are like, really? You're going to go do that? Yeah, um, I think they all got it. Like All the guys that know me well uh, knew that you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about aviation. I've always been involved in not just the military flying. I've always been involved in 
uh, aerobatics and gliding and hang gliding and every, everything across the board. And um, my mates that know me well uh, were not surprised about the decision I was taking to go and start that training because they saw me more of a pilot than a uh, than a senior ranking Air Force officer. Even though I was already a senior officer in the Air Force, they totally got that uh, the fact that I was I've always had a bit of a uh, go get them sort of brain and um, a solo mentality. You know, just I just want to uh, release the shackles and uh, and move move forward as fast as I possibly can. And um, and uh, they acknowledged that uh, staying in the military in the big machine was going to hinder that and also hinder my flying. So uh, yeah, they they uh, they saw it and they all encouraged me actually. So it was uh, really nice to have uh, that support behind me. I was going to say that's like uh, a little bit different than what I would have expected. I can remember when I was on the way out of the military, I kind of had some people looking at me sideways. You're going to do what, Rob? Why are you doing that? So nice, nice to hear you had that supporting element around you. Tell me about your transition from the military and day-to-day life there in, a, in the big government machine to running your own business, really, and then kind of making it all happen for yourself. Was the transition difficult for you or was it okay? Some parts were easy. Yeah, being methodical and... Um, and very detailed planning from you know, my military training that that made uh, you know getting getting things organised quite easy for me. You know, being able to just write big lists and prioritise and and put strategies in place to make sure things happened. Some of the things that didn't come quite so easy for me was um, was people management in a non-military environment where um, <laughs> people and project management where I was very accustomed to uh, when uh, I asked for something to get done or someone asked me to get something done. Um, but you didn't actually have a second question about it. It just got done. Uh, it didn't matter if you were at work until 10 o'clock at night or 2 o'clock in the morning. That you, know, you, you just didn't have to keep checking up on it and it was done. So uh, it was quite a surprise for me for the first you know, probably two years to keep being let down where people would give me a thumbs up saying, yep, we can do that. And then you honestly just go, cool. And then I'd come back on the day of due and go, right, I'm here to get it. And they're like, oh, there's no way we can do that on time. And you go, oh. Uh, but you said you they go, oh, yeah, but things change. So that that was probably the hardest thing for me to get to know is that when people give you a double thumbs up and tell you that, yep, we can do that for you, ninety percent of the time they're actually not telling you the truth. <laughs> and what did you learn about your leadership style? Were you methodical there as well, or were you like, oh, come on, man? Seriously, uh, I was still methodical, and uh, in fact, I, I was criticized quite a bit when I first got out of the military um, about my leadership style, that I was fairly direct and just say, you know, I'd ask a question, people would, would answer it, and then I'd go, right, that is the answer, and let's do it. And it's like, oh, we need some flex. It's like, well, no, I've already asked the question. That was your opportunity to tell me if you could or you couldn't or ask for the flex. So, you know, I'm, I'm planning on that. So, um, I then tried to change my leadership style to be more casual about it, but I just couldn't do it. It actually was affecting my my standards of work. So I elected to maintain my own standards. And if people couldn't uh, deal with my standards being high, I let them go. My transition was very similar. I think most ex-military members would agree with you. It doesn't matter what military you'd been in. When you're in a position where you're managing people and you could just pass out the orders and the stuff gets done, that doesn't really happen in your own business when you've got staff under you and, and things like that as well. How long were you in your own business with Matt Hall Racing before it started to really get some traction and you you found a bit of success there and you thought, hey, I've, I've made the right choice. We had a few ups and downs. So we started our first aviation business probably four years prior to getting into the air race. And that was basically just trying to do some air shows on the side and everything. And uh, re- you know, really, it was just to try and cover the costs of having our own aircraft. Yeah. Um, so you wouldn't really call that a, a business. That was more of a, a side thing while still in the Air Force. 
when I started racing, uh, things actually seemed to work reasonably well initially because we had a major contract for racing and that was covering all the bills already. So I didn't actually have to work too hard to um, make ends meet there, but it definitely wasn't an efficient business. One, the, the race then stopped for three years. And in that three-year period, my my major source, of, in fact, my, 100% of my income uh, disappeared uh, and I was basically unemployed, owning a business with no revenue and assets and debt. So that's where I then had to really put systems in place to make business work. And it was a, it was a uh, sink or swim situation for me that I had the option of rejoining the Air Force and just having a, a, a nice little hobby side business or... I could put myself in the uh, in a hard situation and just make it work. So that was the choice we made. Let's um, let's put it our all in. Uh, let's not do work on the side because uh, work on the side makes you soft. You know, you just need to work on your own business and in your own business if required to get it to make money. So that's that's what we chose to do. And after about two years, we started to finally put some money back in the bank, and then we've used that model to continue to grow that business which is outside of racing, along now racing as well. So we've, we've finally got a couple of independent businesses which are all making money, which is uh, nice to have. How do you juggle so many balls at the same time? Racing and commitments being overseas, you've got kids, you've got family, you've got businesses, and you've got the business that you have, like in aviation, is not like, it's not like a retail business. There's big aeroplanes, there's contracts, there's people to go, and there's maintenance. It's a, kind of a little bit different to most businesses. It's a hard thing to juggle. How do you do that? Um, most of it's about just long lead planning. So I've, I've got a I've got a long lead plan with the business, but I've also got to be very clear in my mind when I'm executing because uh, unlike most bosses, uh, I'm also a sportsman. So and when you're a sportsman, you've got to be able to focus on the here and now and not be worrying about what's happening at the next race or next year or the budgets or the finances. So I, I have to I have to pre-program time and be very compartmentalised on how I'm using my time and my brain space. So. When I'm not at a race, I'll gather up the team and the team is probably the most important thing is the right people. But I'll gather them up. I'll get information from them where things are at and what problems there are. I'll then sit down and go through with them individually about where we want to be, depending on who they are. If they're my general manager, where we want to be in 12 months' time, you know, how we're looking on that. If I'm talking to my operations manager, where we are for the next month. If I'm talking to um, you know, the, the pilots that are doing the flying, so where are we this week with everything? Same with the maintenance guys. I talk to them about you know, long range all the way back to short range. And then the, the few days before I depart for a race, I clear the slate. That's my time now to concentrate on me. And then when I'm at a race, it's I basically hand over everything to my GM or my race operations manager, one at home and one at the race, and make sure that uh, I hand over to them and I brief them, don't come to me with any problems unless someone dies. Basically, I don't want to know about it. So I can just focus on, uh, on myself and, uh, and racing. Well, it's a beautiful example of how the, the military skill set has translated into your business and into your, uh, into your civilian life. And it, the, uh, there's a terminology that I like to use as well, which is prioritize and execute. I like to do that in my business as well. Just look at what the number one priorities are and then execute on those and then just move off straight away and go to the next thing and don't dwell on anything or wait on anything there as well, which just sounds like what you do there. And it sounds like a really well-oiled machine. It wasn't always like that, was it? No, no, we have had our ups and downs, literally. And, um, yeah, we've been through a lot of people uh, on our team. And it, you know, it takes a while to find the right people. It also doesn't mean that when you find the right people that they're there forever as well because um, people can burn out, especially with, um, you know, how hard we have to work with uh, what we do. People can get new opportunities and want to move on. So, 
you've always got to be working with the people. If you've got the wrong people, uh, you could quite easily ask the question of what's the hardest thing about running your own business and you'd say managing the people. If you've got the right people, um, you could say what's the hardest thing about running your own business and you'd, and you'd actually come down to um, holding back the people from uh, from doing everything uh, and, and not having them burn out. So it's getting the right people in place, which is the key. What about your company culture? Have you got that squared away? You understand where I that think so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, we, my wife and I, would do a lot of uh, reading and you know different different books about um, how to run your business, and we we sit down and write down a lot of stuff about what our what our moral compass is and what our what our goals are and our dreams are, and what's important to us for customer service, uh, what's important to us for how people are treated and everything. And then we definitely set the example there. So, um, you know, we're, we like to see ourselves as a still a fun company. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, regimented all the time. We still like to laugh and carry on and everything. But whenever we're in the execution phase, it's, um, it's a very serious company. So very much uh, modelling it around how I grew up as a fighter pilot is, um, you know, you, you, um, you hang out with, with the guys and the girls and, uh, and have fun and uh, jump up and down and, um, and enjoy life. But when it's time to uh, strap a jet on your back, uh, it's pretty serious stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's beautifully said. And it's, you're just consistently kind of reiterating what it means to go all in there. And, and those examples are, are really cool. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. I wanted to just take a couple of minutes while I've got you here just to ask you about your Air Force career and flying fast jets and what the experience is like flying in another military on exchange because not a lot of people get to do stuff like that. That's a pretty cool thing. Are there a couple of little highlights you can share with us about um, your RAF career and, and flying around in, in fighters? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was pretty fortunate with my fighter career that you know, um, I started flying fighters at quite a young age and then um, yeah, did not have a non-flying uh, job uh, my entire career for 18 years. So I was in the cockpit the whole time, you know, flew, uh, flew F-18s and F-15s you know, on, on the F-18s, there's a huge amount of stories. You know, we were, I was in the Horn, my first Hornet squadron. It was the first Hornet squadron in the world to go toe-to-toe with the MiG-29, um, which was, uh, you know, as I say, I was a young fighter pilot uh, flying in formation with a MiG-29, and then we outwards turned and came back in and did some BFM and uh, trying to shoot each other, which was uh, just unbelievable. Um, to with the be, Malaysian ones? Yeah, exactly. So mixing with the Malaysian MiG-29s was just absolutely something that you wouldn't have dreamt of uh, a year prior. Flying the F-18 all around the world, doing a fighter combat instructor course, which is you know, our version of Top Gun, and then and then obviously onto the F-15, you know, as say a very very capable aircraft, and um, and doing some combat ops, you know, not not that you want to be uh, having a war to be involved in, and and highlighting that as a as a you know a great thing, but it's just that that's what you're trained to do, and if there's a war on, uh, you go in there, you know, with, with your heart pinned on your sleeve, doing the best you can for your country, and. Uh, and more importantly, the best you can for the guys that are on the ground to uh, look after them and keep them alive. You, you turned up in Iraq at an airbase with that uh, in 2003, right? That's correct. With your F-15 squadron and the Australian F-18 squadron that you were in was there as well, weren't they, in the same place? Yeah, so I, the, and the squadron, I'd never been in 75, but I'd worked with them a lot. And in fact, uh, most of the guys in the squadron were either ex-students of mine or uh, peers of mine um, that I'd either trained or trained with uh, in Australia. So, yeah, it was a pretty unique situation to be over there with the same guys in the tent next door as it happened, flying F-15s um, in the Middle East with, uh, with them flying Hornets in the Middle East. And that was like the first time the Australian Air Force had been deployed properly like fighter jets since Vietnam, right? 
Yeah, it's correct. It was the first time uh, Australian jets had been deployed for uh, real combat action. So we'd been deployed for operations before, but actually not participated in uh, weapons deliveries since Vietnam. So that was the first uh, weapons delivery over land for any fighter squadron since Vietnam. I found that kind of like a really weird sort of thing to kind of digest because there's the Aussies there for the first time in like 30 years or whatever it is. And here you are as an Aussie, but flying in an American squadron and you're still doing the same thing. Is, do you remember feeling it? Were you just kind of like, oh, whatever, you know, I'm just, I'm doing my thing. Yeah, it is. It is a whatever, especially in combat. You have to once again compartmentalize and not, mm. not worry too much about, oh, what's the historic point here? Or, you know, you know you're definitely not doing it thinking oh, I'm going to be famous because I'm here. There's, there's none of that. It's all about I'm here because the government's asked me to be here and however that is. And I'm just going to then uh, concentrate on, you know, doing my best to, you know, make sure that the the general's directive is uh, is achieved and uh, I keep uh, all of my mates alive. Do you remember your first sortie of the war? That must be like going in your first solo, the first sortie of a war. Were you in a two-ship, four-ship? Were you in a big strike package? What was it? Uh, I was in a big strike package, uh, broken down into a four-ship, and I was uh, dash three of that uh, that mission. Uh, I was um, – so dash three is the deputy leader of the four-ship – we uh, we ended up separating the four ship because we had um, we had a lot of work that we had to cover, uh, so I led my pair around. But as I said, it was part of a, uh, a large package anyway. Um, we had pre pre planned targets for the first couple, and then it was our roaming targets to just uh, try and uh, take out as many uh, targets in the in the compound we were after, which was downtown Baghdad, uh, as possible with uh, with our loadout. So uh, it was a fairly dynamic situation. Um, you know, we got shot at on that first mission as well. And yeah, it was a, a fairly hectic pace um, as we went in there and did it all. Um, and quite surreal, actually, to, to be part of a, you know, you're watching a war uh, start, actually. We were, uh, we were involved as the war started. So, yeah, it was different. Do you remember the first time your radar warning receiver lit you up? I don't really remember the first time um, my rules went off. The first couple of times I got shut out, there was no, uh, there's no rules uh, because they... Yeah, that AAA, um, and there's a few unguided um, missiles as well that were, were just basically thrown up into the air, uh, just trying to make us um, go away. The Iraqis at the time were quite scared of illuminating the fighters because uh, they knew we had the ability to uh, to oh. then locate them and, and shoot back. Yeah, so um, so everything was unguided, but uh, there's a lot of unguided and optically guided stuff is uh, yeah can be still very accurate. So um, the, the first few times was um, you know I remember the first time I actually got shot at and that got my attention. And after that, you sort of, believe it or not, you actually get used to being shot at. You, you start to pick up a, a rhythm for like, uh, seeing a weapon inbound on you and going, right, it's, it's this far away, I've got this much time, I'll test it, I'll see how accurate, what's guiding it. And uh, you, get, you actually get used to having that 10-second you know, period to test it and make some decisions and know what option you should be taking on it. I've been around fighters and, and jets a lot in my military career, not flying the things, but just being around them and being on the receiving end of, of, as well in the Navy. And whenever I see a jet go out on a training sortie, they never, they're never carrying like a full load of weapons. Did you do any training before you went over on ops with like a full combat loadout that you went actually into war with? Or did you, did you have these loadouts on your aircraft that you hadn't trained with before? I'm just wondering yeah, if you've done stuff you've never done before in combat. Yeah, with with normal training, so in a Hornet, we yeah you train, you don't train every day with a combat load because mm. uh, you know it's uh, it's, it's always train with a combat load. Yeah. yeah, so but you do do it 
on exercise and everything. So everyone's aware of how the plane flies and how, how it works. Where I found myself was that um, I, I only had about 60 to 70 hours on the F-15 when I turned up into the combat ops. I'd only just finished my conversion. Gosh. And uh, I hadn't. I actually had never carried any any weapons at all on the F-15. Um, so the uh, the first my first mission, you know, which is a live you know mission downtown Baghdad, uh, was the first time I'd actually flown an F-15 with bombs on it. Gosh! And what did you have on it? Just a couple of JDMs, or you have laser guided bombs on them? No, I had uh, a combination of uh, laser guided bombs. Uh, we also carried classic dumb weapons, um, ballistic weapons. Due to uh, the sandstorms that were occurring uh, in the area that the laser wouldn't be able to uh, guide on, and at the time, JDAMs were uh, were were not being uh, used at that time by the F-15s. So that was it a completely different experience for you when you kind of lift off the runway. Did the plane feel different? No, it, it would have, but uh, it's one of those things that um, yeah, you just get used to. Uh, yeah, sometimes planes feel different. So uh, yeah, it was a, it was a heavy plane, but uh, we were doing insecure departures as well. So. Um, we had to do full burn of um, high energy departures. Yeah, I do remember yeah, the aircraft being quite heavy. We were on a long runway. I think it was about 12,000 foot from memory. But we had to get speed up on the aircraft and not expose ourselves. So, yeah, it was basically just a low flying exercise in the F-15 until you got some uh, speed up. Yeah, we'd stay down at about 20 to 30 feet uh, as we accelerated up to about 400 knots in full burner. And then you'd just pull up to about 50 degrees nose up, uh, pull the burners out and just flare your way up the hill just in case there was uh, anyone around with a shoulder launch, Sam, trying to take you out as you climbed out of the airspace. So it's just we practiced those departures. I'd practiced them in the Hornet for you know, for 10 years. Um, it's just I'd never practiced in F-15. It's just a matter of um, just going and doing, knowing the numbers you had to make. Did you ever look back at it now and think, man, I, I did go all in on that stuff? Because it's like everything that you're saying there, I'm like, man, you're going all in on that. You're doing that. You're doing that. You just, it's just part of life, right? Just part of what you do. It's just part of being in the military. You know, when you ask to do something, uh, I'd, I'd say every military member you could uh, in, in the world, you could say, have you ever had an all-in experience? And he'd probably say from the day I joined. Uh, I'll <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> I would absolutely agree. Nice one, nice one. Well, thank you for sharing all that with us, Matt. It's really cool. What's happening with the air race? You had a couple of wins this year. You're ticking along nicely, a few races to go. It's exciting, mate. I've, you know, I'm sitting here late at night, you know, watching you in Russia with my eyes half hanging out of my head going, what's going on? It's pretty exciting for you. It's, there's only like six or eight points between the top three, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, we've won a couple. We've podiumed a couple. There's two races to go still where um, we were in the lead a few races ago. Then someone else took the lead. And now another guy's taking the lead. So there's, there's three of us that have uh, broken away from the crowd quite significantly. And, uh, yeah, all three of us have been leading uh, the championship in the last three races. So it's um, the, the lead's changing on a race-by-race basis. So with two races to go, you know, we could have another two two lead changes in the race. Who knows what's going to happen? So one of the three of us will be world champion after the next two races. And uh, we're, currently, we're currently in second place, six points behind the lead and three points ahead of third place. So it's, uh, it's super tight racing. And, yeah, the last race just demonstrates that, that, the top three places uh, in the race finished 83 thousandths of a second apart uh, total between the top three places. So it's, um, it's a flip of a coin who wins the race when you're racing that tight. I can't even blink my eyes that fast. Yeah, exactly. If you, if you get your stopwatch out and try and start and stop it, I think the fastest you can, you can generally do is about uh, 0.16 of a second. So it's half of what you can uh, just double tap on a, uh, on a screen. It's half of that. It's about four metres at uh, 400 kilometres an hour. Amazing ride. It's uh, such a, a close race with nothing in it. What do you think's defined? Well, who's going to win? And, and uh, you know, I know who I want to win. 
I'm barracking for the Aussie on the other side of the call here, man. I, I think the whole country is barracking for you. But what's the difference? What's the difference between one, two, and three? Is there a bit of luck? Is it psychology? Is it the team? doesn't seem uh, like there's anything in it. They're all the same. There is a difference. So um, all of the planes are now getting pretty similar. There's a little bit in the aircraft. You know, there's, I think there's a quite a difference in the aircraft between the top three and the bottom three of the, of the championship. But in the top three, the planes are quite similar. We're always still doing stuff to try and get it just that little bit faster. The psychology is probably a big part as who's going to, if anyone cracks under the pressure of the last two races. And I would also say the, the team is extremely important, but all three teams that are there have demonstrated they've got already got strong teams. So um, it, it's, I think it's really going to come down to a little bit of luck as to, because it's head-to-head racing as well, who gets matched up with who. Yeah. And then uh, psychology after that. Nice. And how, how's your headspace? Is it good? Yeah, good. I, you know, I've been, you know, I've come second in the world twice. I, you know, I fought for this uh, before. You know, whenever, if I ever start getting stressed, I, uh, I just remind myself that, hey, no one's shooting at me. It's not that big a deal. Let's just uh-huh. go in there and do it. Whereas, you know, the guys that haven't done it before, you know, this could be the biggest thing they've ever done in their life. And, um, and that could really uh, yeah, force you into the situation where you grab defeat from the jaws of victory. Nice, nice. Well, we're all barracking for you here in Australia, mate. There's the whole country behind you because you're the only Aussie in that race. So we want you to win and, and uh, hopefully you come off in the next couple of weeks with that title. That's uh, really exciting, mate. Really appreciate you spending some time with us here on the Golden Podcast, mate. If people uh, want to connect with you and learn more about Matt Hall Racing and your business, where can they reach out to you? Uh, yeah, our website's just um, Um and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, all that sort of stuff uh, just under Matt Hall Racing. Awesome. All right. Well, that just about wraps it up for the show today. If you haven't already subscribed to the Goal In podcast, just pop open your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button for us. And if you like what you heard today with Matt Hall, just give us a little review because that helps out a whole boatload as well. Well, that's it for this show. Thanks, Matt, for coming on, mate. We really appreciate it. And best of luck with the championship. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Bye for now, mate. Thanks, mate.